0: Okay, so let's, uh, so let's get started. We're, we're doing the uh, panel discussion after our symposium on uh, Neural Dynamics and Coding, and I want to start off by having people introduce myself, uh, themselves. So I am uh, Todd Troyer from the uh, Biology Department at UTSA. Uh,
1: I'm Adrienne Fairhope from the Department of Physiology and Biophysics at the University of Washington. I'm
2: Eugene Izykiewicz from Brain Corporation in San Diego, California.
3: I'm Eric Shea Brown, Applied Mathematics at the University of Washington. I'm Ori Eden,
4: Department of Mathematics and Statistics at Boston University.
0: And I'm Charlie Wilson at UTSA. And we have an audience today as the the remnants of the audience for the the symposium, and they're welcome to uh, jump in. So I'm going to start if anybody has a jumping off point of a question for discussion. Anybody? So um,
5: I've often thought that the inter- concept of coding is you know, a little bit limited in neuroscience to a degree, because um, in the end, I think the brain is a physical system,
2: and its
5: its, uh, its job is to basically produce behavior. And so at some points in the nervous system, it's obvious that the coding concept makes sense. Like if you have something like you're talking about a retinal ganglion cell, um, you're that Information is going to be for so many different kinds of behaviors. It makes sense to talk about spikes encoding some sort of something about the exterior world. But I'm not sure that as you go closer and closer to a motor system or to a decision point that it, it any longer makes sense to ask what the neural code is. I was wondering if people disagree with me and how do you how do you talk about neural coding as you get further and further away from the sensory periphery?
2: I can answer that. Uh, actually, is, Every time there's information, transmission, there's a code, right? And we know that the information comes uh, through sensor organs to the brain. as a spike timing code, right? It's the evidence from uh, retina research, evidence from cochlea, spike timing, even motor control tactiles are, sorry, tactiles are sensing soul spike timing. We also know that muscles are driven by spikes, right? And prevailing uh, dogma, which never been tested properly, but I mean, nobody argues with it, I don't argue with it, that it's a firing rate. This is the code that drives the, uh, controls the contraction of the muscles. Therefore, it's also a code, right? So the code, so it, it information is encoded one way, comes to the brain from sense organ, organs, and then encoded also in the firing rate when it comes from uh, spinal cord to the muscles. Now the question is, where's is the, but uh, my, my vision, question for me is that, where is it that it's conveyed from, converted from spike timing to firing rate? Unfortunately, most biologists think that it comes as spike timing and can convert it to firing rate code right there in the very first stage. And then it's firing rate all the way to the end. Mm -hmm. For me, it would be such a waste of resources if the brain evolved uh, to ignore the precise spike timing, the the firing patterns. For me, actually, it is spike timing all the way to the end. And it's converted to the firing rate at the level of brainstem or spinal cord. But in every possible stage, it is a code. But the argument is what kind of code is it?
5: Yeah, in a sense, I guess, let me try one more thing to ask the question in a slightly different way. Like often, when you're talking about neural coding, the way you measure the efficiency of the code is through information theory. But it's not obvious to me that at every level of the nervous system, the best thing for a neuron to do is to maximize you know, the, the information transmission right there. Eventually, it has, to, it has to do something. It has to cause a gland to excrete some hormone or cause a muscle to in a certain way, or
2: probably other things more abstract before you get to the actual effector system. So that's, I guess, more of the sense of it is. I, I, I agree with you, actually, that if a neuron just transmits information, it's a useless neuron. It doesn't do anything.
3: Yeah, I think that's a really fantastic uh, question, and I would wonder whether in the symposium in, you know, 2062, coding will almost be an anachronism and uh, a side effect of the fact that, you um, at least now, maybe forever, we're we're sort of forced to study the system one set of recordings and and therefore um, uh, one circuit as a time. But I think it's a a beautiful concept that you're pushing us towards that when you think about all the parts um, moving together, the the questions change and perhaps even the point of quantifying a representation in one area all by itself at that time uh, may fade in importance as well.
0: Yeah, I don't think it'll fade. Uh, Go ahead, Yuri. Well, I just wanted to mention
4: maybe a slightly different perspective, which is I think the term coding itself, it might be slightly loaded, but from a statistical perspective, when I hear code, I really just think of some sort of association. And that association might be present because the brain has to do something using that association. But for us as researchers, it might just be describing the types of knowledge we have about a neural system and the relationships that's present there. And so even if we don't understand why the brain might be representing certain biological and behavioral signals in a certain way, the fact that we can construct some sort of model to describe that association is helpful in describing our uncertainty about the system, even if we don't know yet how the brain is using, you know, whatever sort of relationship is present there.
6: Can I ask a related question? Because uh, coding often just means a, a, a change in the coordinate system. And so what's the relationship between coding and computation? If we understand coding, do we understand computation? Are all the computations of the brain just changes of coordinates? Or is there something more to computation
1: beyond that? Can I start and start with that, is that one of the, the key aspects of the way I at least today used computation, which I think is a very limited um, sense of the word, is that it's not simply a coordinate transform, but it's also kind of a flattening of that coordinate space into one or two selected outputs. So there's a key aspect of the nonlinearity. if it was simply just linear transformations all the way down, then we haven't, we haven't done anything. But at every stage, you kind of select out one piece of that and move into that new space is is a an un, irreversible transformation that that I would say is sort of the first piece of computation of course then what we do with that and how we combine those things in a in a complicated circuit as as michael was referring to is what hopefully the rest of the brain does but at least at the at the earliest layers the way that that we talked about computation today starts to implement that nonlinearity and I think as we continue to compound nonlinearity upon nonlinearity those different signals are going to flow together to create new outputs, you know, via network dynamics that that are what the key of, you know, the, the sensory motor transformation so is. So I think
6: you said I'm not yeah. sure, but <laughs> I think you said that the reduction in dimensionality is computation. Is, is the, in some sense that's function. true because you start with the very high dimensionality of your sensory systems and then you decide I push this button or I don't push this button. It gets boiled down to just one bit. And so
1: it's Computation is throwing things away, which is throwing the right things away. Is that? Well, that's one one version of computation. That's a form of computation that we can identify a single neuron is doing, for example. So yeah, you know, when we build up, I mean, there are many other forms of computation where you bring information together and create a decision out of them, for example. Then, well, I guess even decision making is another example of a, of a nonlinear you know, taking in a lot of information into converting that, you know, flattening that out to a one-bit output. So that, you know, could think of decision-making in that that paradigm as well. And I think we'd all agree that decision-making is a canonical computation.
0: But one of the things about, it's dangerous to think a little bit about this transition. Part of the thing that comes with codings is this transformation from inputs to outputs. And, And I'm totally not convinced that we start with the sensory thing and go to uh, motor. Is that the right way to think about it? Or to start from the inside? Or you start with behavior and then you have to refine your behavior based on what you uh, perceive. And maybe the behavior comes first and then the directions of all the arrows flip and get all mucked up. And so even in a decision-making task, the brain is not made to make this decision-making task solely. It's It's been... It's been conformed. Somebody has to tell them what the task is, and it. it has to know how to confine the task and to reduce its processing so that it does that computation for that problem and not some other problem. It has to figure out what problem it is. And so each stage are kind of, there's all these contextual kinds of things. And so I think maybe the the question about whether we're going to do code and whether it's useful really comes. Uh, most of the time we have to reduce things to some problem that we're talking about. We have different, we, we take different parts of the problem apart. And then we think of them as code information and needing to have certain outputs or needing to make certain transformations. And then how those things work is the code at whatever level we're picking apart. I mean, it could be something about decision-making or episodic memory. That's far from some stimulus kind of thing. It's a, it's, we've broken the part, the task apart already, so the notion of what a code is that's uh, useful in some task is part of the task.
7: I'm Fidel Santamaria from UTSA. Um, but uh, isn't it, uh, from listening to you guys, like um, coding, there's like two definitions of coding, like the one that you just described of like understanding what is being uh, processed, and the other is like the association, right? Just like... How compact clone the IDA machine, right? Uh, and that just draws me to the uh, Chinese Room argument, right? You can, you can just generate a series of you have code, you have sorry symbols on the input and symbols on the output, and then you just have a transformation. But you actually not you can probably do it, right? I mean, that's probably the idea. But then you don't you don't you wouldn't understand at all. What is being processed and how is being processed, right? Or what the, the system
1: cares about. But you could, could be that machine. It could be that way. It could be. <laughs> it, it might be, have it been, it is, been that. It's way. Applicable. <laughs> I mean, it's something we have a that set of inputs, we have a set of outputs. What is amazing, I think, as, as we learn more about neuroscience, is how organized things, in fact, are. Receptor fields could have been random, and there are studies that show that random receptive fields do pretty much as well as organized receptive fields. Yet we keep seeing that there's much more order in the nervous system than we might be, you know, led to believe a priori. And so that gives us hope that we can get somewhere, that there may be some underlying principles that are creating that organization, you know, even physical principles. Eugene talked earlier today, well we discussed earlier today about how functional architecture might arise out of out of a uniform sheet of cells in cortex. One can build very simple two-dimensional interacting models that naturally break up into like orientation maps, you yeah, for well, example. Like
7: that, from that point of view, like, uh, um, Turing uh, 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 shapes, which, which this, um, uh Turing patterns. Right? Turing stability. Well, Turing patterns have been proposed as well, the emer- emergent behavior uh, uh, out of relatively simple systems. And since he proposed that, they said, well, this is how nature Generates complex patterns. Nobody has found a Turing pattern in nature, right? It, it's really useful to understand maybe how the shape of a fish looks like a fish, but that doesn't mean that the fish use uh, these equations that, that you use to, to build uh, Turing patterns. I mean, anyway, that's yet counteractive,
0: So I guess another question that I uh, that I that maps into this and that comes up a little bit from what. Charlie was talking about if you think of computation as a map, uh, then it becomes, uh, if it's just, you think of it as a map, not necessarily, but you often think of it as the deterministic, you, you have a transformation of some state into another state. Uh, and it, it, It's true, but when you, when you put, uh, I think the question is whether you fundamentally think of computation in a noisy system uh, different from just mapping. Does it matter, or is it, do you say collapse dimensions of the noise that you don't want, and maybe it's okay to talk about mapping? But I don't know if anybody thinks whether the thinking about probability distributions as your space rather than the state space themselves uh, does that matter in the way we think about uh, the coding problem or the dynamics problem, either, either one?
3: I guess I could respond, you yeah, know, taking from Uri's talk today, which is combining some sort of prior expectation about what's going to happen, right, as rats were running around the maze, uh, uh, for example. a uh, uh, building uh, on that prior information about the world and combining that together with instantaneous inputs, right? Um, as I think everybody in this room knows and works on, is a fundamental computation as well, and that's more than just an instantaneous mapping on the signal that's that's coming together. Combination of different streams or combination of with some sort of internal model as well. And there's, as everybody also probably knows, a famous work of uh, of Puget and, and collaborators that says that as opposed to thinking about uh, individual variables or individual cells with their outputs directly representing um, that, uh, uh, some sort of feature of a probability distribution, the very uh, uh, stochastic nature of that firing itself, right? So to answer your question about noise, may be part of the representation of that uncertainty um, of, uh, about the o- uh, outside world. So so there's at least one example in which the sort of stochasticity of the firing and, uh, and another aspect of coding that we ha- or a that we haven't talked about uh, yet uh, come together.
6: So I don't know, I find myself uh, trying to restate what other people said today, yeah. but uh, did you just uh, say that the that the stochastic nature of the brain reflects the stochastic nature of our knowledge of the world around us. We're making a stochastic model of the world in our brain, and the stochastic nature of the brain is part of that
3: model. What a fun position mm-hmm. to be in. So so <laughs> this is the claim of, of authors, other authors in the literature who I actually uh, admire, uh, but spent forever puzzling about and could not grasp at all uh, for the first couple of years. But that indeed is the claim of some in the in the community is that this fundamental computation of combining prior knowledge with incoming knowledge is something that you could do, right, um, uh, with paper and pencil or in some standard deterministic algorithm, keeping track of probability distributions, plotting them over neurons. But if you choose to do that in a different framework, which is through combining variable spike times, right, so combining uh, uh, noisy signals, then they're very simple additive operations that can do this for you in the sense that a downstream network could decode then the combined probability distributions in a convenient way so yes these authors would say the brain's not noisy uh, because it's forced to do so uh, be so by chaotic or or it's not doomed uh, 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 noise is not just a distraction but it's a tool that enables uh, simple computations to perform interesting types of probabilistic inference okay
2: then then I can Take your role and also try to misinterpret or interpret oh my God. what you In the house said. Virus, somebody uh, else the yeah. So what so you're saying that <laughs> it's not mean firing rate, right, to can information, but not precise timing because it's stochastic. Then what, it, then
1: what is it then? It's not the rate, and it's not precise firing patterns. It's the it's the ensemble of responses from many neurons, which may be different. And so the fact that you have many neurons at the same time whose responses may be individually different, may be a way to represent the fact that you have some distribution of, of likelihoods over what might have happened in the world. And so, while well, they look noisy in that every neuron, every neuron is probably acting fairly deterministically, but it's instantiating one of the many uh, guesses at what the stimulus might have been.
4: Yeah, I just want to bring up something that came up during my talk and I think relates to that, which is when we talk about stochasticity, when we talk about randomness, there's different interpretations of that. In particular, some people are really referring to something inherent about the system, that the system itself is stochastic, and that might relate to uncertainty within the brain as a whole. But it's also possible just to think about our own knowledge about the system and talk about stochasticity based on what we've left out of the model, what we can't predict based on what we know about the system. In that case, when we're talking about stoch- stochasticity, it's not something that's inherent to the brain. It's, it's making a statement about our lack of complete knowledge about the system. And it's assigning to, when we're constructing a model, uh, components of the model, that are predictable and components that are not predictable.
6: We blame the brain for our uncertainty.
4: What I'm saying is that when we say stochasticity, we mean we don't know, but oftentimes it's easy to interpret that as, oh, because the brain doesn't know. Um, But in fact, a lot of times you can have systems that maybe with full knowledge are quite deterministic, surprisingly deterministic, where we could predict spike times very well. (coughs) But coming from you know a statistical point of view where maybe I'm interested in a very simple input out re- relationship, I maybe know that there are many factors intrinsic there that I'm not going to even try to model. And so I'm just throwing that all into some stochastic structure to make my modeling problem easier. Um, and that will maybe allow me to get at a larger association without having to delve into details which I can't handle at the moment. Yeah. Plus, we
2: can also add that the most optimal code Right? We just bring communication between two subsystems. We look completely random and stochastic for external observer because it removes all redundancies, right? So, yeah, maybe there is a... Then to put it upside down, what we just said, said it, maybe there's no stochasticity in the brain. It's all deterministic, it's all precise, all optimized for efficiency in terms of from communication theory point of view. Just that our knowledge is so limited we even not comprehend what we're observing then we treat it oh, it's noise. It must be firing rate. Just because it doesn't mean anything to me.
6: It sounds like we need to know the difference between those two. How can we find out whether the brain's really stochastic or whether it's just an illusion?
2: Well, everything's an illusion. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no. There, sort of that? There's a I was thinking about this this claim that that the uh, I don't know if this is the the right claim to take from uh, Eric's interpretation or restatement of someone else's work, and ch- uh, restating it for Charlie. Um, but that uh, the the noise in the so you can think of that the noise in the brain is its is the representation uncertainty in the neural firing is the representation of uncertainty about the real world. Uh, just like people say that time is the representation, you can use time to represent time. It's just, it's the same kind of thing. And if that's true, it seems like it's a pretty strong uh, constraint on the, on the kinds of uh, uh, stochasticity or variability in neural signals and its relationship to the kind of variability and uncertainty you have about uh, external stimuli or the, or the real world, but there's some kind of match. And if that's true, then it's, then it is much more like a deterministic mapping from the state of the world. In you don't know what the state of the world is. So I'm going to say this neuron thinks if, if I believe that this, the state of the world is X and I'm an X neuron, I'm so certain to it. I just say X with some probability. But there is a correspondence to what I'm saying or when I do those action spikes and what I think is in the real world. That would be, seems to be a pretty strong prediction about the nature of the stochasticity of the uncertainty in the world and the, uh, and the representation that may be able to be formalized enough to be, to be tested. Uh, it may be just too abstract to do, but I, I don't know if you can design an experiment that way.
3: I, I could make a comment, which is in, in part a bit of a, a, of a retraction, how about that already? <laughs> um, uh, and and uh, that's that, uh, what I do know is that if there is some level of uncertainty in a signal after it comes through the first uh, uh, sensory uh, layers, right, so maybe there's some unavoidable uh, noise in photoreceptors or something. Um, then certain types of stochastic representations, in particular Poisson-type firing, if those are preserved, there are simple types of computations, namely adding spikes, which do not lose further information as that signal is passed downstream. So in a sense, the uh, variable firing is preserving whatever uncertainty is there after the first layer. That would be, I think, a more precise way to state what's going on. And in tandem to answer your question, that at least according to this one theory, which is uh, uh, perhaps the first or just one of many that we need for sure, um, there is a particular type of variability Poisson-like or firing in the exponential family that is good in the sense that it enables Um, uh, uh, simple implementations to do lossless computation on probability distributions downstream. And I think that does point towards a statistical test. If you have some sort of variability um, uh, uh, that you can't imagine dealing with in terms of the network architecture or dynamics downstream, we're either limited in our imagination or that's a type of variability that might really not be used or not be helpful in terms of pushing around signals or or computing on them.
0: It seems like if, if, if uh, I guess going on to that, if there is a redundancy, when we talked about this uh, this uh, property of optimality in code, should reduce all redundancy in the uh, in the signals that come in. And if you're going to represent the real variability in the signals that come in, you would re- represent the redundancy. So, in some sense you can't mimic uh, the variability in the outside world unless you want to. Have, you know, have the redundancy along good, along with it. So you got to, at least a little bit, pick and choose to be optimal, right? You, you don't want to pick everything that, that, that comes in.
1: There's no real meaning to optimal without a set of criteria over which that thing is optimal. And so I think that the game with, with trying to find uh, signatures of optimality in the brain is to say, in what sense you think something might be optimal, and test test that particular criterion?
6: Give us an example. Uh, what would be a good criterion for optimality in in
1: sensory coding? Say, wow. So one there. Okay, there are many different examples of this, but you know, one very simple one is that one wants to get the most information into the brain as efficiently as possible. And so, in the example that I talked about today, one would like to make best use of one's dynamic range for a given neuron. And so in in the case that I discussed, that would say that you should adjust your, your coding strategy in order to use the dynamic range that you have to encode the widest range of stimuli that you can see. So you should stretch that, that, um, that axis. That could break down very easily. In fact, it, it should as soon as you're talking about populations of neurons, because then you might want to, uh, introduce this, this other notion of efficiency which says that you don't want two different neurons to be handing forward the same information. You'd like all your neurons to be as, as independent as possible. But then you might add a further criteria and say, look, but I want it to be energetically efficient. So I want them to be firing as, as rarely as possible. And so one can keep kind of layering on additional constraints that one by one are going to kind of shape the solutions to the, to the optimal code. And so when we see a given solution, Implemented by the brain, one can kind of back that out to say, well, which would be the criteria that, under which this might be optimal? Are they sensible? Does that does that kind of hold together? I mean, no one's no one would like to claim that the brain has to be that way, but let's use this as a tool for testing what kind of algorithms the brain is using and whether they might make sense.
2: Just to uh, paraphrase what you said, it because the brain. Function of the brain eventually seen to behavior. Then, if you try to go from sensory system, to kind of to deep and deep and deep, eventually come up with the uh, eventually survival of the fittest. But one step before that is the behavior, right? That the optimal for the behavior, and eventually behavior for the survival. So, uh, and then you can uh, compensate by having a rousing visual system, as long as you have very good auditory system. or vice versa.
6: But well, that is a tough criterion for optimality because then you have to judge everything in the context of
2: survival of the species. Or for all the words yes, but not in nature. Nature yeah. is the. It's easy
6: for nature,
0: it's just hard for us. Yeah,
2: that's why we don't do it. <laughs> that's why we fail
0: all the time. You know, people guess, right? They, they guess what's relevant. And uh, it's interesting in the sense that uh, the other, other thing that that people do. And I guess maybe that's why you study uh, uh, primates or humans because they're the only ones stupid enough that you can tell them and say that, that they care about doing something completely artificial, right? You can make them that this is really the thing that you have to do with more or less success. Yeah, uh, rats are much smarter. It takes them hundreds of thousands of trials to learn something. Or they just something don't, different. I mean, it's some question is whether they care or, or whether they're actually, well, Making me do, I like, could figure that out and they just give up.
1: Uh, yeah, I think that's a, a good reason why, why notions of optimality have been most successful in cases that are extremely constrained. You know, the fly neuron H1, it's the only neuron that encodes that particular signal and it needs that signal to successfully fly. And so it's a real, as, as Bill Biala would explain, it's a real bottleneck for that particular source of information. With a human, you can make them do any task you want, and so how I think it's going to be much more subtle to find ways in which we might be engineered to do that task unless it's in the ability to be incredibly flexible, and we don't really have a sense of, abstractly, how the ability to be flexible and to turn our attention to a wide variety of tasks might be implemented.
0: But I think that's that actually may be one of the, the most important questions that's at the borderline of what the symposium was about in terms of how can you make dynamics flexible enough to do adaptive coding and the right kinds of matching of mechanisms, not that you can find something that works, that the whole range of of the control the flexibility and the stability of the control parameters match what you need to do with the representation. I, I, yeah, I, don't I think know.
1: this is an area where you know, suddenly the computer scientists are really waiting for neuroscience to, to come up with solutions to how we do such robust computation. What is it about the components and the algorithms that the brain is using that is so insensitive? to small variations, to errors, to fluctuations in temperature, to fluctuations in stimulus, and yet we can consistently recognize people and move around. You know, Eve Marder has this beautiful work recently where she shows that, you know, that the somatogastric system can- continues to work even as you change the temperature by by a long way, so all the Q-factors of the neurons are going way out of whack, yet the network continues to function with the same rhythms. So what? What are the underlying principles of neural computation that give it that that incredible robustness? And I think if we could extract those principles and try and figure out how to build them into into silicon, we would we would really have helped out um, technology.
2: I, I think this resonates with Charlie's comment that, yeah, if you're talking about individual system, maybe it's hopeless to understand it. You have to talking about nature and survival of the fittest, and that you have to integrate everything together and have a system embodied in the environment. Uh, the brain should be embodied, in, in this body embedded in the environment. So that it's, it close the loop. So you you study it as a whole, not individual parts. And then you see how the system starts to do plasticity, for learning, through adaptation starts to compromise. So I'm going to, uh, my neurons are going to have more fire right over here, because there's something else is new over there. So uh, this is a. You have to consider the whole system and not just model parts of uh, individual components of the system. This is why the stomatogastric gangland, the animal grows from tiny size to bigger size, it still works because it's the whole system. Uh, And this will be your criteria for optimality, is the behavior of the system.
1: It's a really tall demand. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which is actually theory. pioneered, but never
2: realized you were an ethologist. <laughs>
1: no, that's
6: the, but I, that's the I, I spent
2: nine years at, at the Neurosciences Institute in San Diego, and this is a philosophy of Edelman. He started while he was still in Europe. That brain isn't and you wouldn't stand. You wouldn't understand how the brain works unless you build the whole system which behaves. This is your final. Because how do you know the visual system works? Through behavior, right? You could have simple cells, complex cells. You can. Publish papers and papers on all the individual things, but you don't know that it has the vision until you actually show something and you look at the behavior. Not recordings from your model IT, but the actual behavior. So it has to be I'm just
1: going kind to of take that in a different direction, because if you do consider the whole embodied <clears throat> animal, it, it, this came up in my mind while you were showing your your images of robots, in particular, and um, Dean Commons' robotic arm. So what, what he says is that what he's trying to do with his arm is to take more and more control out of the hands of the user and embody it in the device. And so in a way, this is very, a very different perspective, right? Animals are making use, as we've seen also from Big Dog, right, of, of musculoskeletal dynamics to do a lot of the computation that, that we might before have thought we'd have to put in the brain. And I think this is a great way forward, right? It's to, to kind of offload computation onto the body and to see what are the kind of minimal dynamics that the brain needs to send out that will control the body. And so, you know, I I agree with you completely that that treating the system as a whole is the right way forward. But you know, it might be worth considering how much of computation is actually offloaded, or at least allowed it's, to it's happen in the in the through the body itself.
2: It's a lot, and and, and we know that in in insects, uh, sometimes just uh, you don't have. I mean, certain uh, behaviors happen without a moment of the nervous system, which is very high-level behaviors just, uh, just because of the mechanics, spring-like structures of the
4: uh, actuators, right? the wings of the insects. So that came an example, is, I think, a great example because it's been so much more successful. Than the brain-machine interfaces, which now over a decade people have tried to, you know, actually take signals from the brain and use them for a control system, and yet we can't get nearly the same level of control as if we just hook these up to muscles that already exist that aren't designed to control uh, an arm, and, and yet somehow we can with the learn the
1: springiness of objects without it having to ever come back yeah. right to the to the. So that's brain. the thing I always
4: found most surprising yeah. about that.
2: i always find surprising the, the whole. Uh, brain-computer interface research, is that they just try to implant elect- or oh, think about implanting in the brain, where most 99.99% of to- all, uh, people who need that they have functioning eyes they can saccade, they can look where they want to see they have tongue, you can put electrodes beneath the tongue, Just there's so many other oh, less yes. attracting ways, maybe, but f- <laughs> for the mass media.
7: Those were things that are- were first done, right? Paul Bakirita in Minneapolis did uh, many of the things, uh, I mean, I 40 years ago, right? He put electrodes in the back, and late, I mean, he passed away a few years ago, but he put electrodes in the tongue. And he was quite successful, as a matter of fact. I mean, it's surprising that he hasn't been, it's not widely used, right? But those things have been No, it's actually
2: used, but if you want to do research, it's not sexy enough. It's not kind of... Um, it doesn't create as much mass media attention toward your research as if you're talking about uh, reading brain waves and controlling robotic arm just from EEG. Just. is... Uh, and
6: then if you can send it to the robotic arm over the internet...
2: <laughs> <that> <laughs> <would> and even, <laughs> right, and if the arm is on another continent, it's even better because it's even more coverage. In the news, as if it matters.
0: Well, so one, uh, I guess, going on that, it seems like... Um, it's potentially whether it's actually the, the importance of the body itself, or you can, if you take a kind of hierarchical view of some of these natural tasks and break them into pieces and have interacting interacting systems, then each system is actually using the other, the lower system. Uh, if you want to take a hierarchical view, and so you're going to actually have you want to evolve, uh, you want to have. Representations that are able to flexibly take a uh, account of other representations that are stable, right? So you want to have stable stability and robustness at different levels, so that you don't you can offload some of the, the robustness as you go, and then you learn how to control other systems that are stable uh, uh, and not. And so some of the questions becomes, you know, if they're too stable, then that's a problem too. Like right? how can you kind of break them? Uh but I don't know if there's maybe a problem in the sense that to, to really study that question, you need several levels, um, and people don't do it because it's just too hard, or uh, I, I don't know, maybe you don't have enough data to constrain that kinds of complicated problems.
1: It could be a very interesting challenge for you, Gene, actually, as the brain corporation goes forward of your brain in a vat versus brain connected to your robotic arm that initially Needs the brain to learn how to move, but eventually, hopefully, as we say, learn to play squash. Most of our, our ability to do that sort of gets offloaded into automatic systems that we no longer have to use to consciously drive. So it, it'll be fun to see how you go about that. Actually. Whether whether you'll end up sort of the robot body and the brain will, will learn together, or whether you, whether you'll just train up brains to. So we
6: have a very well learned movement. We're still using our brain to do it, just not the cortex. I just want to make it yeah, clear that, that, that there thought. are parts of the brain that are not yeah. cortex. computational <laughs> neuroscientists are confused about. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, mean, I was
1: thinking of the disturbed cat walking along the different strides.
6: In fact, so that it's you know. actually using the part of its brain, the spinal cord,
0: and, and spinal cord. So Yuji's brain just has the thalamus and the cortex now, right? Uh-huh. And uh, right, so far. So far, so far it's, uh, it has a thalamus in the cortex. So we're adding, you know, the dopamine system is a scalar. <laughs> <laughs> we have to there, add yeah, it? And there's uh, in, in that
2: model, right, it's only thalamus and cortex. I mean, it's very stress, it's not a model of the brain. It doesn't have hippocampus, doesn't have basal uh, ganglia, cerebellum, just uh, nothing be important, right? right? <laughs> Some people, I say, yeah, so not, yeah, it doesn't have a body, which is probably the most <coughs> important thing that the body is missing. But once you have a body, then uh, you want to build it, actually, not from the corticocentric point of view, but from the subcortical point of view. You want to start with spinal cord and brainstem, stem then add cerebellum, better control, basal ganglia for action selection, or whatever it is President is doing. I couldn't get it out of Charlie today, uh, maybe for the record. Uh, I am not
6: the person who decides what the basal
2: game is. Uh, about. It's the
0: big. I thought you were holding the big secret. Yeah, what everybody is thinking. I have not been authorized.
2: Uh, proprietary and confidential. <laughs> but it's uh, so you build it from uh, from uh, bottom up, and then eventually you add cortex. But is this some, something which is not really important? Maybe something like to to uh, perform. 1% or one-tenth of percent of the actions, but everything else has to be uh, done purely subcortically. And I mean, in, in some sense, you mimicked evolution, right? How the species evolved.
1: Like so, so in terms of your plan of how to go about that, from from what you presented today, it sounded as though you were kind of working at the cortex level where one might hope that by implementing timing phenylplasticity and getting to some task, it would kind of self-organize in some sense. We know an awful lot, I mean, not not enough, obviously, about the detailed structure of the circuitry at some of these lower brain levels, are you going to build that in in advance, or would you hope that those areas would somehow self-organize and we would know why cerebellum has this beautiful crystalline structure, or would you put that in in advance? You put that in. Yeah. So you put in, you want to know everything if, that, that exists. And, and yeah, like and that. Even, even
2: visual cortex. You don't just start with a completely random mush of a kind of uh, random, random graph. You have layers, you have the one the 2 so that what you don't put is just that the, this microcircuit, to this, you don't put which neuron talking to which neuron or the weight of the synapses, because you hope it to be learned through STP. but gross anatomy, yeah, just you want to borrow it as much as possible from what is what is known. Same as cerebellum. Yes, you put the model of cerebellum with the right anatomy, the right dynamics, but then individual synaptic
0: weights from parallel fibers to Purkinje cells, yeah, just you hope they'll be they'll be learned. But So I think that... Uh But I I think maybe that the constraint, maybe I'm just speculating here, is that if you want to get funded, you better start with the cortex and work your way down. Uh, um, And you want to have an independent corporation give you a sponsor your research, you start with the cortex and the brain, and then all this other stuff you say you're going to take care of. Funded, you mean like NIH or funded
2: venture? Either way. Because if if you're in university, what I noticed, if you're university, you, you concentrate on the challenging, important problems to understand who we are. You, know, you study maybe a uh, fruit fly, you study rats, but you're attacking, you're putting rats in an environment which is completely unnatural to rats, as you pointed out, because you're want to, st- because you're interested in human behavior, right? You want to connect somehow to the human, uh, to consciousness eventually. In neuroscience, this is one, word which is one of the few words which is prohibited. Not the one is free will, right? In your science department, you should say this uh, until you get tenure. <laughs> uh, the, the word police are standing. Oh, okay, <laughs> I'm sorry, but uh, but uh, because you attack hard problems, right? Whereas uh, uh, my uh, the more I think about it, the more I understand that if you want to build uh, products that actually be like robots that behave like, like animals, you want to actually attack simple problems that have simple solutions, but you want to integrate everything together. You don't want to do experiments. You want to open, you want to have access to all those journals and read all those models, all those papers that people studied for the last, what, 50 years. And if you want to integrate this. And if you concentrate on simple problems, you find simple solutions, you have a, you have a model that actually, could be relatively simple. Uh, but we actually can do stuff which is not interesting for the for, uh, majority of neuroscientists because it's not bringing us closer to understanding the human brain.
0: So, unfortunately, we have to, like, cabs are waiting and and people have flights. I think that we should, uh, uh, we need to wrap it up here. And I thank everybody for participating and thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, So, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Show.